0: We're continuing on in this series through Joshua, and today we have a, a figurative and, and sort of literal, uh, we have a lot of land to cover. Uh, we're going through chapters 12 to 19, which uh, on a surface level, if you were to look at it, you would see it's a lot of surveying of the land and laying out of the boundaries. And in uh, one glance, it's a little boring. Uh, but if you look deeper, there's a lot of there's a lot of history there, a lot of fulfillment of God's promises, and I would encourage you, uh, if if it is boring, uh, maybe just pick up a commentary and dig into a little bit. We're not going to get into all of that today that, uh, I would like to, if we don't have enough time. But there's just incredible, fascinating amount of stuff in there. But my my passion today is to is to show the gospel at work through the Book of Joshua again, and. And to fall, fall into a place at the end of this talk where, where we can see Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith and the one who has done this for us and leads us into more and more of the promised land in him. And, and to really to not make the same mistakes that Israel makes and that we see in these chapters. But I, I want to start by telling a story and a little bit of a, a parable, if you were, or a, an analogy. And so if you would... Just indulge me on this for a couple minutes, okay? Imagine if you were working in a factory. Your father worked in this factory. Your grandfather worked in this factory. And it's miserable. You hate it. You hate every minute of it. You hate the boss. It doesn't reward you for your work. You barely get paid. Curse him under your breath regularly. You have a whole lot of wrath stored up inside of you. You go home at night and drink yourself numb or indulge in other things to try to make you forget about this place and this work, and you don't see any way out of it. It's hopeless. You go in day after day and day after day, and you do this job making widgets or whatever it is, you know, the the great factory analogy. Occasionally, though, you see this this well-dressed man come in, kind of older, debonair three-piece suit and walks around you see him talk to some of the other workers and occasionally you see the other workers leave with him and they don't come back finally one day he comes and talks to you and says hey you know i could take you out of this place if you want to would you want to come with me you're like well this is all i know this is all i this is all i know how to do and he says well i have a place that we can go to i got a job that you can do You say, oh, well, what do you do? And he says, well, I restore hotel properties. I restore resorts that have been run down or left kind of empty. I would like you to come and and do that with me. And you're like, well, it sounds better than here. Let me think about it. So you talk to him a couple more times, you keep working his job. Finally, you're like, you know what? I've had enough. You take off your apron, you throw it down and you leave with him and you go. And you go and you live in this, this hotel. He gives you a suite on the 10th floor and then he says, it's all yours. But what you notice, though, is that the whole place is run down. Vagrants, farming, whatever, all over the place. Used to be a beautiful resort. Maybe in the 70s or 80s it was wonderful. But now it's just kind of run down. And he says, I'm giving you this entire place. Your job is to fix it up. You can live in the suite. You can make it whatever you want. And you're like, well, how am I going to pay for that? And he says, I've already paid for everything. You can go to Home Depot, Lowe's, wherever it is. I've got a tab running, and you can go just put it on my tab. Fix it up. Do whatever you want with it. But I want you to make it yours, and eventually I want to come and live here. I want this to be my place. And I want this resort to be beautiful. And he walks you through it, and he says, I can see down here, maybe we could have a wine cellar. We could, we could uh, cure our own meats. You know, I'm into these kind of things. I love this stuff. And, you know, we could fix it up, and maybe we could have an ice cream shop. We could have a beautiful couple restaurants. And you say, well, yeah, what about, what about some of the drug dealers I saw running around? What what about those guys, these these bad people that are around who who aren't really into this? And he says, well, you know what, let's make a place for them too. Let's make a place where they can get well. And you're like, well, I'm kind of scared of them. And he says, you don't need to be scared of them. If you go and you talk to them, maybe they'll join you in the work. Or if you ask them to, they'll leave. Just trust me on this. So you... You get to work, he leaves, and and you start fixing up your suite because you live there and you want it to be nice, and you you make it look good, and you invest in this place, and you do all sorts of work to make it look good. Eventually, though, you're continually scared of these people down the hall, so you put up a gate, and you don't really let them in. Occasionally, they'll come to the gate, and if they present themselves well enough, you let them in. And a couple people come in, and they join you in the work. Now, there's a few of you working on this. You fix up the suite next door. Maybe you've got a couple of them now. One day you decide to go, and you know, I'm going to go outside of the gate, I'm going to go and talk to some of these, these people, this riffraff down the hall who I'm terrified of. And you go and you knock on the door and a guy opens the door and he's got a gun in his sweatpants and you see a drug deal going on in the background. You're like, forget it, I'm out. I'm not doing this. This is terrifying. And you go back to your room and you just keep working on that. Eventually the man comes back and he's incredibly disappointed at, at what's happened here. You had this entire place that you could have fixed up. And you only fixed up your own. And he says, what happened? And you're like, well, I was, I was terrified of these people. and I don't really know what to do with, with addicts. And I'm, I'm not really sure. I'm not gifted for that. And he says, I told you, you could have done this. You just had to trust me. And he says, well, all right. I'll give it to somebody else. I'll let somebody else do it. And you're terrified. You think, oh, my God gosh, I gotta go back to the factory now, like what am I gonna do? And he says, no, you can, you can join the waste staff down in the kitchen, you can be part of room service or something, I'm not gonna make you leave, but I am gonna give it to somebody else to do it. Okay, now, with that in mind, thank you for indulging me in that, just keep that in mind. Israel finds himself in a similar position. If you remember, going all the way back to Genesis 12, God comes to Abram and says, I want to give you so much, but it's not just for you. This is going to be a blessing to the nations, he says to Abram. He says, I'm going to give you children like the sands on the seashore, and you're going to go, and out of you you're going to be a light to the Gentiles, which ultimately points to Jesus. But it's not just about you. And it goes to become the the full nation of Israel. We see these 12 tribes and all of these people, and they end up in slavery in Egypt, right? And they're there for 400 years. And God comes, and through Moses, he breaks them out of there, and he frees them from slavery, and he walks them into the desert, and he says, we're going to go into this promised land now. And remember, Caleb and Joshua and the other spies go, and they check it out, and they're terrified by what they see there, because there's giants in the land, and they don't know what they're going to do, except for Joshua and Caleb say, we can do it. We can take this land. But the other spies doubt, and it makes the, the hearts of the people melt. So, so God says, okay, this entire generation is going to die in the desert, except for Joshua and Caleb. So then we come to the Jordan River, where Joshua is now leading the people. That entire generation has died, and they cross over the Jordan River miraculously, and they conquer Jericho, and they conquer Ai. And now we come to chapter 12. And what we find is that Israel has now conquered, Two kings on the east side of the Jordan, and 31 kings on the west side of the Jordan, in the promised land. We see these kings listed out in 12 and 13, and, and all these kings and their villages have been, have been sacked and, and conquered, and, and God is exerting power over them, and authority over these kings, and over these areas, and over these people. And he says to the Israelites, I've given you the same authority, go into the land and occupy it. So on one side of things we have conquering and now we have occupying. And they're supposed to go and occupy the land. And what are they supposed to do? From Abraham down through all the Israelites to to this place now in the book of Joshua, Israel is supposed to go and they're supposed to be a place where they clear the land and they make it holy for God's presence to come and dwell. To set up a temple where worship will happen, where God will be uh, the God of the people and they will be his and people from around the world can come and worship him. This is ultimately what God was trying to give Abraham through the people of Israel. And ultimately through Moses, he gives them the law so they know how to love God and love others. They're supposed to live this out. And ultimately to declare God as king. As king of the world where they worship him and people can come and worship him. So, we come to Joshua 13. And what happens here at the beginning of this section is it's a real high note. And then it descends into the valley for a little while. And in 19, it picks back up again with Joshua uh, moving into his own land. In, in 14, we start with Caleb. All right? So Joshua's now going to start giving the land to the people. And say, okay, this is your land. Go and occupy it. So he starts with the tribe of Judah, which historically there's prophetic reasons for that. But he says to Caleb, okay, you're gonna, you and Judah are going to get this land. And look with me at 14 verse 6. I want you to see sort of the faithfulness of Caleb. How he trusts God, and what he expects God to do, and then we're going to compare it with the rest of Israel and what they do. Alright? So in Joshua 14, 6, remember, remember this guy Caleb, the look what he does. Now the men of Judah, the tribe that Caleb was from, approached Joshua at Gilgal, and Caleb son of... Uh, Jephunneh the Kenizzite said to him, "So this is Caleb now talking. You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God, at Kadesh Barnea about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. So remember, this is pre-roaming around the desert, right, back when he was a spy. And I brought Moses back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear." I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So, now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. So here I am today, 85 years old, full of... Blank and vinegar, right? I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Can you picture this old man? I can do it. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. So here's Caleb, 85 years old. Reverencing back to what god had done 45 years earlier when they went into the land initially and they see these giants and he says you know what these giants are still there joshua give me that territory i want it i said 45 years ago that god would do this and i know he will still do it now even though i'm an old man he will do it through me let's go i want it so he's just exuding this not something about himself but faith in who god is Recalling God's promises and recalling that this is the same God who marched them across the Red Sea, across the Jordan River, defeated Jericho and Ai, and says, he will certainly give me this land of giants as well. Give me that land. I want that. To me, this is one of the highlights of this kind of boring section of, of land after land after land. And we get Caleb, this crazy man for God, who says, God can do it, and he's going to use me to do it. Incredible faith. He's going to go in there, and he's going to occupy, and he's going to declare God as king, like Israel was supposed to. But then look what happens. At the end of chapter 15, we see Joshua giving land to the rest of the tribe of Judah. Look at verse 63 of chapter 15. Judah could not dislodge the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. To this day, the Jebusites live there with the people of Judah. So if you remember, God said, you're going to drive these people out and you need to get rid of them because they're, they're sinful, broken people who will then drag you into this sin with them. You're going to end up intermarrying them, you're going to end up worshipping their idols, make sure you get rid of them. But it says here that Judah could not dislodge them. And I don't think that was a matter of ability, it was a matter of faith. They were too scared to go and occupy this land because the Jebusites were there, so they don't do it. Look at uh, chapter 16, verse 10. Joshua goes on to give land to Ephraim and Manasseh, these other tribes, and look at verse 10. He says, they did not dislodge the Canaanites living in Gezer. To this day, the Canaanites live among the people of Ephraim, but are required to do forced labor. So so, so the people of Ephraim are like, well, we can't drive out the Canaanites either, so we'll get them to serve with us. We'll, we'll We'll at least subject them. So they live among the people. And look at 1712 to 18. Yet the Manassites were not able to occupy these towns, for the Canaanites were determined to live in that region. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they destroyed them. No, they subjected the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. So again, this time after time, compared to Caleb, who was so faithful to occupy the land, we now have the Israelites who are unfaithful and don't believe God will do what he said he would. So read on Matt, that verse that uh, verse 14 of 17. Look what happens here. This is an incredible story. The people of Joseph, meaning Ephraim and Manasseh, said to Joshua, Why have you given us only one allotment and one portion for an inheritance? We are a numerous people, and the Lord has blessed us abundantly. So this is the people of Ephraim, the tribe that Joshua is from, and they're saying, Look how much God has blessed us. Look how many people we have, how much God has given us. How come you've only given us one portion of inheritance, Joshua? We need more. And Joshua, I can picture him with this pithy smile on his face. If you are so numerous, Joshua answered, and if the hill country of Ephraim is too small for you, go up into the forest and clear land for yourselves. They are in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephites. The people of Joseph replied, the hill country is not enough for us. And all the Canaanites who live in the plain have iron chariots. There it is. There was the question behind the question. There was the fear the whole time. They didn't need more land because they were numerous. They wanted more land away from the bad people. That's really what it comes down to. They say they live in the plain and have iron chariots, both those in Bethshan and in its settlements and those in the valley of Jezreel. Listen to what Joshua, the man of faith, says. But Joshua says to the house of Joseph, to Ephraim and Manasseh, You are numerous and very powerful. You will have not only one allotment, but for, the, for but the forested hill country as well. Clear it, and its farthest limits will be yours. Though the Canaanites have iron chariots, and though they are strong, you can drive them out. Again, he's bringing Israel back to faith, saying, remember who God is and what he has done up to this point. Don't disobey this. Don't ignore this. Go and live in the land. You will be able to drive them out. And then finally, so I can continue beating a dead horse, look at 18. The whole assembly of the Israelites gathered at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting. Now, this is the remaining tribes who haven't gotten land yet. They gather around the tent of meeting, and they're just hanging out. I'm picturing they're camping there, and they're just staying there. And they're like, hey, God's here. The tabernacle's here. This is good enough. Look at what Joshua says. All right, we'll go to the rest of verse 1. The country was brought under their control, but there were still seven Israelite tribes who had not yet received their inheritance. So Joshua says to the Israelites, how long will you wait before you begin to take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? So he's frustrated with them. Appoint three men from each tribe. I will send them out to make a survey of the land and to write a description of it according to the inheritance of each. Then they will return to me. You are to divide the land into seven parts. Judah is to remain in its territory on the south, and the house of Joseph in its territory on the north. So he tries to kick him in the butt a little bit. And he says, all right, I'm going to send out surveyors. They're going to go look at the land for you. They're going to tell you what the boundaries are. And by lot, by, by the drawing of lots, God's going to show us which one goes to which tribe. And then I expect you to go and live in it. I expect you to go and occupy it. I expect you to go and conquer it and get rid of the riffraff that's there. Get rid of the sinful people that are there. So that God can come and live in this holy land and make his presence known. So that we can live out the covenant that God has given to us. But they don't do it. We see through the rest of this book, they don't do it. We see into the book of Judges what the result is. So the first thing I want to think about in light of this mistake that the Israelites make is, the, is what happens when we fail to drive out sin. Not sinful people, but what happens when we fail to drive out sin, in the case of the Israelites and sinful people. Well, first off, it means not living in the fullness of God's blessing. God has this entire story that he's writing for them where where he and they are the centerpiece of of the the worship center of God. And they don't get to live in it because they refuse to kick out the Canaanites, the Jebusites, and all all these other ites among them, right? So they don't get to live in the fullness of God's blessing. And what happens is they end up tolerating the sin that's among them. And they put up with it for a little while, and they put up with it for a little while, and then they get used to it. And then they, and then they start intermarrying with these people. And we see later in Judges and in Kings that they start worshipping their idols. They start worshipping the Baals, and the, the promiscuity that happens that God was warning them about the whole time and asking them to kick out, they're now becoming a part of. I was watching a BBC special, Planet Earth 2. I don't know if anybody's seen this yet. But it's mind-blowing imagery. And in the first episode, I think it was the first one, they cover um, a sloth. Have you ever seen a sloth? It's this ridiculous looking animal. It's incredibly slow moving and a kind of lethargic creature. And it shows this thing slowly climbing a tree. And it says it moves so slow that moss starts to grow on it. Like, and they show this thing up close. There's like green fur on the back of this animal. And I thought, man, how much is that like sin in our lives? When we are slow moving and going after it, it just starts to grow on us. It kind of becomes part of who we are, and we don't even realize that it's there. It just sort of inhabits our person. It kind of sticks to us. Poor sloth. I'm sorry I used this beautiful animal to make a sin reference. But, but that's, that's really what sin is like. when We don't go after it quickly through the, through the Spirit of God to destroy it. It ends up destroying us. The other day I was at Jacobsburg, and... And I was looking over that little bridge you can go across, and I was looking down into the water, and I saw these logs at the bottom of the water. And I thought, how long did that log have to sit floating in the water before it became so waterlogged that it sank to the bottom? Again, it's like an imagery for sin. We just sit in it, and eventually it sinks us. And what happens to Israel, right? They're freed from slavery in Egypt. They're supposed to go into the land and inhabit it and occupy it and get rid of sin and start to live out the Ten Commandments. And yet they don't get rid of it, it ends up destroying them, and they end up where? Back in slavery. They end up losing all of it, because they won't destroy sin. So in this, this first part, what I'm trying to convey is that, is that Israel fails at this. And we can easily point at them and say, oh, silly Israelites. But the truth is, they're failed humanity just like we are. Had we been there, we would have done the same exact thing. Because we're not faithful. We're broken people who walk away from the Lord regularly. So the, the gospel parallel here, if you think about it, is, is think about who we are in Jesus as Christ followers. And, you know The majority of you are here. Think about it. We've been freed from slavery. Right? We've been brought out of bondage. And we've been put into a new land by Jesus through the cross and through his resurrection. The power of sin has been defeated, Scripture says. It no longer has to control us. We can give ourselves to the Spirit. And then like Israel was tasked with bringing the kingdom, we have been tasked with bringing the kingdom and the fullness of God's blessing to the world around us. And we are called to live out the full life. John 10.10, 10, right? The thief comes to kill and destroy, I've come to give you life to the full. What's the full life? To love God and to love others. I'm convinced that that is the full life, to love God and to love others. So I want to look at, in light of Israel's mistakes, in light of who we are now in Jesus, what does it look like to live that way? To to get rid of sin, to move into the land, and to live the full life. If you have your scriptures, turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you go to Ephesians chapter 3, Paul, at the end of chapter 3, he details very clearly what he wants us to understand. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up reading the Apostle Paul thinking this. Jesus comes and he establishes the church, and it's supposed to be focused on him. And then Paul writes all these letters to say, now here's how you're supposed to behave. Here's what you're supposed to do. Here's the practical application of what Jesus brought And all these years, I've read it looking for rules. I've read it looking for, now do this, do this, don't do this. And when I've gone back and read Paul recently, you know what I found? You know what Paul really wants us to do? He wants us to understand God's love. He wants us to understand God's love and who he is for us and who we are in him. And to declare Jesus as king. That Jesus has come and won the victory, established his kingdom, and we now get to live in it and proclaim it. It's not about rules, it's not, certainly there are are ways to live, but we'll talk about that in a little bit. So the first thing I think Paul declares for us is God's love for us and how we are to love God. Look at verse 14 of chapter 3 of Ephesians. Paul says this, For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Paul is laying out for the Ephesians saying, look, if there's anything that you need to understand, if there's a way that you're going to learn how to be faithful, it's to bask in God's love. It's to soak in who God is and how much he loves you and how much he has done for you. And by understanding this and by starting to really grasp this in our lives, step by step we start to live what Paul says is worthy of our calling. Worthy of what he has called us to, which is to build his kingdom. And to live forever with him. And we've talked about this so many times through, throughout this series. But This is about posture. This is about worship. And friends, uh, I, can't, I can't... This isn't something that you can force yourself into. I'm just going to believe this now. This is something you, you just soak in. And the same way that when we soak in sin, it starts to overtake us. When we soak in God's love, when we read the scriptures and look for it, when we pray, when we meditate on God's word, when we fast, when we practice spiritual disciplines, We slowly start to grasp this. After time, after time, it takes a long time, and we grow in the knowledge of God's love. Grow in the knowledge of God's love. Look for that in Paul's letters. You see it all over the place. So in the full life that Jesus calls us to, we're called to love God. We're called to understand his love and live in it and worship him. But it's not just for us. Okay? In the same way that Israel wanted to just camp out next to the tabernacle and have it all for themselves and not move into the land and, and kick out sin, it's not just for us. Look at Ephesians 4, 1-7. Actually, I'll just read a couple verses out of that. Think, think about what Paul's saying. He establishes God's love for us, and then he says this. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Others-centered, right? Then look at verse 11. It is God who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to prepare God's work, people for the works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up. In verse 16, he says, From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Paul establishes for the Ephesians, look, if, if you want to not make the same mistake that the Israelites made, if you want to live into this full life that Jesus promised us, you understand first who God is and his love for you, and then you go and you give this to other people. You live for the sake of other people. You live for the sake of the church so that it's built up and can proclaim the kingdom, and you live for the people who are around you. You know, Adam talked about it during uh, during announcements, I mean, we've been drilling this one-for-one initiative since the beginning of the year, because this is what God has called us to. Not necessarily because we only want to see hope grow, we certainly want to see this church community grow, because we believe we're proclaiming the gospel, but this is part of our full life that Jesus offers us, is to go and bring the kingdom to the world around us. I'm reading this book right now by N.T. Wright, a great thinker and theologian called Simply Christian, and And in this, he's talking about the Holy Spirit and and what it looks like to be a Christ follower. Listen to what he says. The Holy Spirit and the task of the church. The two walk together hand in hand. We can't talk about them apart. Despite what you might think from some excitement in the previous generations uh, about new spiritual experiences, God doesn't give people the Holy Spirit in order to let them enjoy the spiritual equivalent of a day at Disneyland. Of course, if you're downcast and gloomy, the fresh wind of God's Spirit can and often does give you a new perspective on everything. And above all, grants a sense of God's presence, love, comfort, and even joy. Listen to this. But the point of the Spirit is to enable those who follow Jesus to take, to take into all the world the news that he is Lord. That he has won the victory over the forces of evil, that a new world has opened up, and that we are to help make it happen. this is something I'm just starting to come to grasp with, honestly, is is this inaugurated eschatology that that the end times have, have begun. We are living in the physical kingdom of Jesus, and we have a role to play in bringing it about. We have a role to play in God's redemptive work on earth, and the Spirit gives us the ability to do that. It's not something we muster up. It's something that we live for, and it's something that the Spirit gives us to declare God as king in all that we do. in all the the ways that we live. So if we want to not make the same mistake as the Israelites in in forgetting God's faithfulness and and not occupying the land and not kicking out sin, we, we have to understand God's love for us and we have to start living for the people around us. Start living for the church as a whole. Start living for our communities and revealing God's love to them in all that we do. Now... One of the main issues that, that wrecked Israel was not that they weren't trying to love God so well. It was not that they weren't trying to love others so well. It's that they didn't do away with sin. They let it dwell in their camp. They let it live among them, like we've talked about. And it started uh, occupying their minds and their spirits. It started to destroy them. So I want to look at, briefly, briefly look at what it looks like for us to be courageously obedient. Okay. Look at Ephesians 4:17. So Paul says so far, God loves you. We're called to love others. And then look at verse 17 of chapter 4. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. So if you can picture this, this is, this is the people outside of Israel, right? Back in these days, this is the people who were not following God. So the equivalent now is us as Christ followers, and Paul says this to the Ephesians and to us. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you see it come full circle there? Paul says you are loved by God, you are called to love others, and you are called to, to, to live in the new self that Christ has given you, and then God comes and dwells with you You become like him, and he dwells in you via his spirit. Paul says in other letters that we're not to let sin reign, that we are to put to death the deeds of the flesh, that we are to put on the new self, that we are to regard ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to Christ. And again, this is not something that we just muster up inside of ourselves. I know from my own experience trying to quit sinful behaviors, I know you guys know from your own sinful experience, you can't just muster this up and say, okay, I'm done doing that now. I'm not going to do that anymore. The truth is we don't have the ability within us. The Israelites didn't and we don't. We just can't do it. And that's legalism that says, no, you can do it and you should do it and you're poor Christians if you don't. Right? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to remember who we are in God and bask in that, and soak in that. It becomes grace-motivated obedience. We talk about that all the time. That when we remember God's grace towards us, it motivates us to obey. We were talking about it this week, and and you can't really convince anybody of this. You can just ask them to try it. I can't can't convince you enough to say, go and obey, and trust me, it works. Go and, and just soak in God's grace, and and it'll all be better. You have to try it. You have to try it. And, and I can tell you from experience that, that when, when I'm, okay, for instance, when, I, when I'm tempted to be angry at my kids and, and lose my temper, which I do, all right, I'm not a perfect dad, like I've lost my temper, I've yelled. That's the devil tempting me to think that the full life is found there. If I act like that, that will make me feel better. And what Jesus says is, no, 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 the full life is found in being gentle. The full life is found in being meek, in being kind, in being patient. So it's a decision in that moment to remember who I am in Christ and think, okay, well, do I want this empty life that the devil's offering me or do I want the full life that God is offering me? And do you you get it right all the time? No, but you slowly start to add these things to you. And, And like the sloth, instead of adding sin and moss to yourself, you're adding God. And you're slowly moving towards this life instead. You will make mistakes. I will make mistakes. And the enemy wants you to think two things. When we make mistakes, the enemy wants us to think two things. The first is that you can't defeat him. That you are not going to be able to do this. And the second is that God is now angry with you. And you have to earn your way back in. I'd ask for a raise of hands, but I know we all feel like that, where we make mistakes and we think, okay, I just need to read enough Bible now to get God to love me again. If I just pray enough, I'll be on a good relationship. You know, actually, I'm not going to talk to God for a couple days. We're going to give our relationship a break, and then once I've gotten myself together, then I'll come back, and God will be happy with me. It's all a lie. It's a lie from the devil, and it's religion. Because what What Jesus has done for us is he defeated the power of the enemy. And God now sees the guilt that was put on Jesus. He doesn't see it on us anymore when we are united with Jesus. He sees it on Christ. So as soon as we make these mistakes, we can immediately turn back to God and say, you know what, that's not the full life. Forgive me. Help me live into this now. God, continue to pour your love into my heart. Help me remember that. Adam talked about it. When we go through this free series, I, I really encourage you to be here. I encourage you to pray through this. I encourage you to invite your friends to this because we're going to be going through what Adam talked about, what, what, what Jesus has brought us through the empty tomb. That we're now free from guilt, free to be joyful, free to live the full life that is found in grace-motivated obedience. So look, I'm going to wrap up. The bottom line is this. If we don't want to make the same mistakes that Israel did, we need to remember that it is not only about us. That our coming to Christ is not only about us and what we get. It's also about the world around us. And that that we are called to total freedom. Total freedom in the gospel. So that we can know God and we can make him known. And Jesus said it pretty clearly, to whom much is given, much is required. Back to the hotel analogy from the very beginning. Jesus has given us so much, but much is required of us. But when we live into it, when we live into the redemptive work that God's called us to, what do we get? We get the whole hotel, the resort, everything, and God's presence with us. When we remember that it's not just about us. Jesus is our our Caleb, who is faithful to go and and fight the giants, to take the territory and to lead us into the land. Same as Joshua. He's taken away our guilt and he gives us authority to build the kingdom. To go and have authority over evil, authority over the, the demons, and authority over our own sin. To say, in Jesus, I can overcome this. When I remember God's love. i wrap up by reading this quote. N.T. Wright goes on in this section about the spirit. And he says this, The task of the church can't be attempted without the spirit. I've sometimes heard Christian people talk as though God, having done what he's done in Jesus, now wants us to do our part by getting on with things under our own steam. But that is a tragic misunderstanding. It leads to arrogance, burnout, or both. I'd say it leads to religion. Without God's spirit, there's nothing we can do that will count for God's kingdom. Without God's spirit, the church simply can't be the church. I use the word church here with a somewhat heavy heart. I know that for many of my readers, that very word will carry the overtones of large, large dark buildings, pompous religious pronouncements, false solemnity, and rank hypocrisy. But there's no easy alternative. I, too, feel the weight of that negative image. I battle with it professionally all the time. He says, but, for many, church means just the opposite of that negative image. It's a place of welcome and laughter, of healing and hope of friends and family and justice and new life. It's where the homeless drop in for a bowl of soup and the elderly stop by for a chat. It's where one group is working to help drug addicts and another is campaigning for global justice. It's where you'll find people learning to pray, coming to faith, struggling with temptation, finding new purpose, and getting in touch with a new power to carry that purpose out. It's where people bring their own small faith and discover in getting together with others to worship the one true God, which is why we gather week in and week out, that the whole becomes greater than the sum of its parts. Well listen to this. I love this. No church is like this all the time. But a remarkable number of churches are partly like that for quite a lot of the time, which is what we're aiming for, right? Which is what we want to aim for, to be mostly like that as much of the time as we can be, Living in the freedom of the gospel inviting people in with their little faith, with all their hurts, and to remember God's love for us, to remember to love one another and to go and build the kingdom together to make Christ known that he is the the victor over sin and death and he's brought God's kingdom. Would you pray with me? Jesus, you are victorious. You have overcome sin and death, and we gather here to proclaim that again today. And we admit again, Jesus, that we can't do that on our own. That we can't, we can't defeat our addictions. We can't battle our sin. We will not win, but you have. Through your death and resurrection, you have overcome the power of sin. You have overcome the threats and and, and of guilt, and uh, I mean of death, and, and you've overcome guilt on our behalf. And when we are united with you by your Spirit, we have the power to do that. Would you continue to reveal your love to us, the love of the Father? Would you help us soak in that? Would you help us help us change little by little? bit by bit to become more like you. To know the love of the Father, to love others, and to make your kingdom known. Jesus, we can't do that without you. Help us encourage one another to live that way. Help us build one another up to make your love known here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen.